As we continue to uh, fly through Revelation, we have finally made it to chapter 3 and to the church in Sardis. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, please listen carefully as this is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word again. Uh, as we uh, are grateful to be here, to be with you, to have your word to be with your people. As we look at the church in Sardis, we know we do not want to be like this church. We want to be alive in Christ. And if we try to do that on our own, we know we will fail and die. So Lord, help us to meet Jesus this morning in these words. Do this for each of us this morning In Jesus' good name, amen. Amen. The king of Persia, named Cyrus, uh, tried to conquer a city once. The city was on a mountaintop and impossible to attack. The city was so secure, they slept well at night. This city was a fortress surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs, so apparently impregnable that To capture the Acropolis of this city became a catchphrase for something impossible. The citadel on top of the cliff was 1,500 feet above the valley floor below. The city could only be reached from the south along a very narrow and elevated strip of land. Steep cliffs protected the city. It was virtually impossible to scale. This city was the capital under King Croesus was king of Lydia from 560 to 546 BC. His wealth was coveted by the rest of the world, and there was a, a catchphrase about him as well, he's as rich as the king of Croesus. city had the wealth and the fortifications that led to an unbelievable sense of security. They had a nobody-can-touch-us mindset until the Persians under King Cyrus came to town. And during a battle with Cyrus, Croesus waited on top of the city, knowing that no one could scale the cliffs. Meanwhile, Cyrus had offered a reward uh, to any of his uh, soldiers who could find a way into the fortress. And a certain soldier who had been watching the battle one evening uh, saw one of their soldiers accidentally lean over, look over the edge of the wall and drop his helmet over the wall. And he watched him as this soldier went to retrieve his helmet. And in the process, this soldier inadvertently revealed how the wall could be scaled. 
So the soldier from the Persian army knew there was a crack in the wall that sort of served as stepping stones, kind of as a ladder. It could be climbed with skill and agility. And so that night, Persian soldiers scaled the wall. And they met no opposition as no guards were even stationed on the wall. Assuming their city could never be taken, they were all asleep. And unfortunately, they slept so well that no one kept watch. And they were easily overrun. And as if history doesn't repeat itself, a few centuries later, Antiochus the Great of Syria sent his armies against this city in 214 B.C. And his soldiers did the exact same thing. And once again, when their troops scaled the walls at night, they found the wall unguarded. And once again, they easily overtook the city. Which city was this? Sardis. The city whose church Christ is writing to here in Revelation 3. And so Jesus comes to the church in Sardis, and he makes reference to these events in the history of their city, being sleeping and overcome. And he warns them that another thief is coming, and you better wake up. Sardis is a slumbering church having a slumber party. They're comatose. That brings us to our text this morning, which is written to the church in Sardis, but it was written by the one they've apparently forgotten about, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the first blanks in your outline in verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Do you think dead churches make a decision to be dead? I don't think so. I think for most of them, one of two things happens. First, they get involved in idolatry, which leads to immorality. And they begin chasing what the world offers. And they find it better than what Jesus offers. And so they willingly plunge headlong into sin. And I think this is true of many liberal churches in our country today. Or, second, they become self-righteous. It's not about Jesus anymore, it's about us. And it's about how well our church does, how big our church is, how many activities our church conducts, how much money we have, blah, blah, blah. Look at us. We're the busiest church in town. You should be pretty thankful that we're here to help. And somewhere along the line, Jesus has pretty much been forgotten. And I think that's true of many conservative churches in our country today. And Jesus starts this letter much the same way. He starts all these letters by saying, essentially, look at me. And that's what this text insists upon. The letters to the seven churches are not primarily about the church, but about the church's relationship to the Lord. And in light of the spiritual deadness pervading this church in Sardis, they have to consider Christ. The prescription for dealing with deadness in the church points entirely to our relationship with Jesus. And each of these seven letters offers sort of a return glimpse of John's vision of Christ in the opening chapter. Each revelation to the individual churches brings to mind 
just what they need to recognize concerning Christ. And he wants us to remember, first and foremost, who he is and what he's done. And look at how Christ reveals himself to this church. He says the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. First, he reveals himself uh, essentially, I think, as the life giver. He who has the seven spirits of God, the seven spirits implies the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Seven is a, uh, a number that implies perfection and completeness and fullness. If one doesn't have the spirit, then one doesn't have life. According to Paul's language in Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And that language infers that unless the spirit has brought one from spiritual death into life through union with Christ, then that person continues in deadness. Christ gives life through the Spirit. The Spirit gives life through union with Christ. Those who are spiritually dead must look to Christ for the gift of life given through His Spirit. Second, He reveals Himself as the Lord of the church. He who has the seven stars. The stars represent the churches. Christ holds the churches in His hand. They exist by His pleasure and for His glory. And to find our identity in the world or in some other Uh, ecclesiastical claim to fame is just foolish when Christ alone is Lord of the church. Third, he reveals himself as omniscient. He says, I know your works. He knows them through and through with perfect knowledge. Nothing good, bad, or indifferent escapes his sight. So we have to be honest about our own spiritual condition before the one who sees and knows everything about us. And so often we think, you know, that we can cover up our deadness with activity, with busyness. You know, we're doing so much for the church. And perhaps we can fool those around us, but we're not fooling Christ. He sees through the facade of works to see what really motivates us, to see where our affections really lie, to see whose glory we really seek. And since he knows this church, apparently he doesn't like what he sees. And so he comes to them with a very severe rebuke, a severe rebuke, verses 1 and 2. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. How'd you like to get that letter from Jesus? I mean, what are you going to say? Well, who are you to say? That's not going to work. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So far, as we've gone through, we've seen that Smyrna was a good church, and Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira were good and bad churches. They're going to start a new denomination, Good and Bad Bible Church. But here we've gotten to a bad church, the church at Sardis, and Sardis stinks. Does that bother you? Jesus has no kind words for this church. I know some of you are the eternal optimist. You know, well, things could be worse. That's true. Everything could be worse. Everyone 
could be worse. But the reality is, is there are terrible churches out there. And there are terrible denominations of churches. And there are churches and denominations out there for which Jesus has nothing nice to say. Nothing nice to say to them and nothing nice to say about them. In the United States this year, 10 churches will close every day. You can do the math. A lot of people think that's terrible. And in one sense, it is. The vast majority of those churches were started as good Bible-believing churches, and so it's sad to see them gone. But in another sense, the vast majority of those churches, regardless of how they started, are now totally dead churches, and it's God that's closing them. They're dead, and he's removing their lampstand. God has said, no more. We need live churches, not dead churches. And I know you're not supposed to say this, not that that's ever stopped me before, uh, but we live in an area with some terrible churches. I would estimate that at least half of the churches in Loudoun County are like this church. They look alive on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. Reminds me of Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees. Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now you can imagine the response of this church to this rebuke by Jesus. Remember, this is a circular letter that's being taken from church to church. So every church got to hear what Jesus said about all the other churches. And I'm sure they were wondering, Jesus, why don't you have anything nice to say to us? I mean, you said something nice about all the other churches, not you. You claim to be Christians, but you're not. You're dead, you're decaying, you're starting to smell, and I'm sick of you. You think, that's terrible. I mean, everybody needs a little encouragement. No. Some people just need to stop. And from a spiritual standpoint, if they won't stop, they need to die. Others need encouragement, but not these people. They needed rebuke. They got rebuke. And if they don't repent, those who aren't already dead will die soon. It's a general principle taken from Scripture. Look at Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, or will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And It's exactly the same way with churches. It's exactly the same way with spiritual death. When a church sows to itself, it will reap from itself corruption, decay, and death. I mean, what is the point of no return for these churches? I don't know. I'm not sure anyone other than Jesus does know. And that's why it's necessary for Christian churches to keep moving forward, to keep building up the saints. I can tell you, I don't think that uh, the Christians in Sardis thought they were dying. But there's obviously a process underway that left undetected and uncorrected would ensure 
that their children would have no church when they became adults, and worse, their children wouldn't care. But spiritual decay is not obvious. And this church is known. It has a reputation for being alive. It's known for works. And look here, there's no false teachers in Sardis. There's no Nicolaitans. There's no Balaams. There's no Jezebels. There's none of that. What had once excited them and moved them and inspired them and motivated them and served them and got them up and going for the Lord, they took for granted now. Sardis still looked like a Christian church. It still thought of itself as a Christian church. It was still confident in its Christianity. But comfortable, confident Sardis comes under the most severe condemnation of any church among the seven. It's dead. And their church remained as a body. But the energy, the color, the heat, and the life was gone. And a living body and a corpse have a lot of similarities. But the important thing is what's different about them. And here's a church where the reputation is far from reality. They have a reputation for being alive, but they're dead. Simon Kistemacher of Reformed uh, Seminary wrote about this church. Its accommodation to its religious environment shielded the church from persecution, for hardly anyone took notice. Its inoffensive lifestyle yielded religious peace with the world, but resulted in spiritual death in the sight of God. And apart from a few faithful members who kept the fire of the gospel burning, the church itself was gradually dying like a fire that lacks fuel and air. Yet among the smoldering ashes were a few glowing embers. You could say uh, Sardis was a fig tree with great leaves, but bearing no fruit. They had a form of godliness, but denied its power. They refused to live under the power of the Holy Spirit. They had stopped preaching the gospel in order to make peace with paganism. And Jesus sees a church that's capitulated to the surrounding world of pagan religion and Judaism. And instead of being an influence on the culture, it had been influenced by the culture. According to an article in the International Herald Tribune, there are at least 14 living persons whose names were initially listed among the 58,175 dead and missing uh, names inscribed on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Apparently the errors occurred when the clerks typed the wrong numbers into a computer, and I'm told they've since been corrected. But one of those 14 was a man named Eugene Tony, and he said seeing his name etched in the memorial's black granite was kind of scary, like seeing your name on a gravestone. Now, if the government tells me I'm deceased when I'm not, that's a major inconvenience and a lot of paperwork. But if the risen Lord Christ tells me I'm spiritually dead, that's a serious problem. Yet for the believers in Sardis, there is a ray of hope because Jesus gives them several commands. Verses 2 and 3, he gives them several commands. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. 
Five commands in there. Wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. The first command, and I'm not going to go through all five, but the first one is to wake up. Literally, become one who is watchful. Remember, he's writing to Sardis. This was a city that didn't have a great track record at staying awake and being watchful. The church here is asleep and indifferent. The church is to be light, not darkness. It's not to be hidden under a bushel. It's to be salt, not to be trampled under the feet of men. And the churches here in Revelation are all wrestling with the idolatry in the world and its tendencies towards all kinds of immorality. We're wrestling with the same things. And it's probably, in many ways, worse with all the electronic media at our disposal, which can be used for both good and bad. You have to realize we're in a war that requires constant vigilance. And then the last command, they're told to repent. Realize repentance isn't a popular word uh, these days. People don't like to be told to repent. Um, You know, I'm not wrong. I'm just a little misguided. I'm not bad. I'm just misunderstood. I don't need to repent. You know, I, I just need more love. But sometimes the most loving thing that someone can do is to just be honest and say, that's wrong. It needs to stop. That's sin. And you need to repent. And if you don't repent, your life is going to get worse. What you're doing dishonors God and leads to death. I thought you loved me. I do love you. Sin leads to death. I'm trying to save you. We need to remember that the essence of the church doesn't consist in numbers or uh, nickels or even in noise. It's not in programs or buildings or past achievement or reputations or institutional greatness or even in formal doctrinal correctness. In fact, try to find me a dead church that doesn't have a building. One thing that many of us want, probably more than anything else, is one of the common denominators for a dead church. Be very careful what you pray for. You might get it. Jesus tells us in John 15 that to experience real life, we simply abide in Christ. And then we bear fruit because we're attached to the life-giving branch of Jesus. And the spiritual life only comes through fellowship with the living, risen Christ and is demonstrated through the seriousness of our own faith and repentance. And if we don't repent and believe the gospel as part and parcel of everyday life, uh, then Jesus gives them and us a severe warning. And the warning he gives here is similar to the one he gave to Ephesus that he will come and take away the lampstand. This reference here to a thief refers either to immediate judgment or impending judgment. The Bible speaks of Jesus coming like a thief in at least four other passages of Scripture. I'm going to read those to you. Just listen for a minute. Matthew 24. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 1 Thessalonians 5, our responsive reading this morning. 
Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Second Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then later in Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be exposed. My concern with many in the Presbyterian Church today is we don't really think the Lord's returning anytime soon. And as a result, we're not vigilant and watchful like we should be. And these verses make it abundantly obvious that when Christ comes, it'll be a total surprise. People will be utterly flabbergasted, unprepared, will be like a thief in the night, will bring unbelievable feelings of regret and shock that you aren't watchful and vigilant. And so Jesus warns them, apparently because there were still some people who weren't dead yet. And to them, Jesus gives wonderful promises. Look at verses 4 through 6, wonderful promises. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This congregation in Sardis has the name of Christian, but was lacking the thing itself. That's what is meant when we use the term nominal Christian. Nomen is the Latin word for name. So a nominal Christian is a Christian in name only. The Romans had a proverb. Nomen est omen. Nomen means name. Omen means sign. So literally, the name is a sign. And nomen est omen meant that a name was often a person's destiny. It would prove to be a fitting for that person. Names were much more important in the ancient world uh, than they were today. A person's name was always uh, thought to determine something about his life. We see this repeatedly in the Bible. The baby born to Mary was to be called Jesus because, Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior. His name was a sign of the meaning of his life. But often the name is not a sign. The nomen proves not to be an omen. You can be called a Christian and not be one. You can call yourself a Christian and not be one. And so it is the case in Sardis. So it is the case today in a lot of the church. And there's a lot of people today who have decided to punt on the church. George Barn is pushing this agenda in one of his recent books entitled Revolution. He's a, uh, a Christian pollster who's very good at analyzing problems in the church and uh, downright horrific in offering up solutions. His proposals have done more harm to the church than anyone I can think of who still claims to be an evangelical. He documents the exodus from the local church of countless folks, and he calls them revolutionaries. Many of them are now enjoying the church of the open fairway on Sunday morning. And that doesn't bother him, since according to him, the church is out of touch, too authoritarian, 
too devoted to its own preservation and comfort, and lacking in witness, let's get off this Titanic before it sinks. Now, to be fair, his description of the church has a lot of truth in it. It's just solution to just pack up and leave that is just flatly unbiblical. Thankfully, this isn't the approach of Jesus. He doesn't indicate to us in these letters that the church is even remotely unnecessary. But in fact, he considers it to be indispensable. He said, Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The kingdom of God begins with the local church. I don't think it ends there as Christians scatter in the world and live out kingdom principles. But then they gather again uh, as the church for fellowship and encouragement and instruction and prayer to go back out to the battlefield of life a little bit more equipped each week. And the jettison the church is to go AWOL. And thankfully, there's still a few people in Sardis who haven't sold out to the world and haven't given up on the church. And to them and to those who repent, Jesus gives great promises. He says those who are worthy will be clothed in white garments. The symbol of holiness can be found throughout the scriptures. This is one of the most glorious promises in the book of Revelation. Sinners have their filthy garments removed and replaced by spotless white garments provided to them by Christ himself. And so these people in the church at Sardis are still addressed as Christians. Their names are written in the book of life. And he says, don't worry, I'm not going to take that out. If you're in the book of life, you stay in the book of life. And the good news is the church of Sardis listened, woke up, strengthened what remained, and repented. Last spring when I first went on Facebook, um, that enormous time suck of life... Um, I took a little quiz, which I don't have time for anymore. But it was, what saint are you like? And so I kind of answered all the questions. And it came up, I was like, Melito of Sardis. So I looked him up. I didn't know anything about him. Melito was bishop of the church in Sardis. He was a godly man. One of his contemporaries said of him after his death that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and he sleeps in Sardis awaiting the visitation from heaven on the day of the resurrection. The early church fathers, uh, Tertullian speaks of his eloquence, both his preaching and his writing, and uh, Eusebius mentions that he wrote 18 books, unfortunately, now all lost but one. We only have one remaining book. It's on the passion of Christ. And to Melito, we owe uh, the first Christian list of the Old Testament books uh, written in the second century. Remarkably, does not include the Apocrypha. He also wrote a commentary on Revelation, which I think would be fascinating to read if we only had it. I mean, what would he have said of his response of the Christians in Sardis to the letter they received from John? We wish we knew more about Melito of Sardis. But we know enough to know that the church he pastored some 60 years after John wrote Revelation was a faithful Christian congregation full of spiritual life. The church had wakened. It had strengthened what remained. It had repented. 
And modern archaeologists have found some very significant ruins at Sardis, including evidences of early Christianity, which include a picture of the Apostle John. We don't live in Sardis in the late 2nd century. We live in Virginia in the early 21st century. So what is there uh, for us in this letter? There is this. The name of the Christian is to designate those and only those who are alive. Alive in the knowledge of God and His Son Jesus. Alive to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Alive to the presence of Christ so we can be said that we're walking with Him. And at every point, every hour, every day, we're to be living out our faith in Jesus. We're to be making our deeds complete in the sight of God. Doing what we know Christians ought to do for the reasons Christians ought to do them, whether in the privacy of our own heart, in the fellowship of the saints, or out in the world. Every day we're to be strengthening what remains. Every day we're to be waking up. Every day we're to be repenting of our sins. Why? Because God has one requirement. God has only one requirement for entrance into heaven. That we be clothed in Christ. That we be clothed in Christ. Listen to how Jesus describes the inhabitants of heaven. Taken right out of this passage. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Listen to the description of the elders in heaven. Revelation 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And what is the clothing of the angels? Revelation 19. And the armies of heaven... Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. All are dressed in white. The saints, the elders, the armies. How do you suppose Jesus is dressed? In white? You'd think so. I mean, of all the people worthy to wear a spotless robe, Christ is. But according to the Bible, he doesn't. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Why is Christ's robe not white? Why is his cloak not spotless? Why is his garment dipped in blood? Let me answer you by reminding you of what Jesus did for you. Paul says simply in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In the New Century Version, it says that same verse, Christ took away the curse of the law, put on us. He changed places with us and put himself under that curse. He did more than remove our coat. He put on our coat and he wore our coat of sin to the cross. And as he died, his blood flowed over our sins, and we were cleansed by his blood. We were covered by his blood. And because of this, when Christ comes, we have no fear of being turned away. Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me 
with the garments of salvation, and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. For those who are awake, rejoice in the Lord. And for those who are asleep, the Bible says, Ephesians 5, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's the command of Christ. It's also the call to come to his table. And as we approach uh, the table today, let's ask the Lord to work in our hearts in such a way that we might be repentant people, that Christ might shine on us, and that we might rejoice in the Lord. Make that your prayer this morning. Take a moment to pray, and then I'll close.